The Year of Tragical Drinking by Glenda Mae Richards The Year of Tragical Drinking, July We were never sure how Anne developed a taste for country music. Mum and Dad listened mostly to classical music. Opera poured liberally from the stereo on Sundays. I prided myself on being quite hip to the changing music scene, moving seamlessly from Led Zeppelin to Elvis Costello to The Cure. Janet wasn't so into music, though she claims to have heard of the Gang of Four before I did. I love a woman in a uniform, she would sing, the summer she spent in some sort of army training camp for teenage girls, undoubtedly where the whole lesbian thing started. American radio dominated the airwaves when I was a teenager. We lived in Windsor, Ontario, across the river from Detroit. Windsor stations, like all Canadian radio stations, were legally bound to play 45% Canadian content. The Motor City didn't have to worry about that puny legality. Detroit had dozens of classic rock stations, as well as ones devoted to heavy metal, gospel, and for a short period, to my joy, new wave music. Anne's bedside radio was tuned permanently to WYCD, the country and western station. Loretta Lynn, Johnny Cash, Dolly Parton, Anne's extensive cassette and CD collection included the icons, as well as young upstarts like Randy Travis and Shania Twain, Canadian, Mom and Dad even took her to the Grand Ole Opry in Nashville. Anne likes to listen to the radio in the mornings. While she meticulously prepares her breakfast, brand cereal with blueberries and bananas, toast with apricot jam, instant coffee with milk and sugar, I try and find a Toronto radio station we can both tolerate. I find country music only palatable in small doses. I still find classical music somewhat enervating. The CBC is too much talk. After years of listening to the posh tones of BBC announcers, the Canadian accents grate on me. Also, I'm pretty certain the woman reading the news is someone who was a year behind me in my broadcast journalism course at college. I try the Zoomer station. Zoomer is a term dreamed up by a famous Canadian media mogul. It's a combination of baby boomer and the first letter of his last name. Moses Nimer was the ego behind City TV, the ultra-cool Toronto TV station I tried and failed to get a job at. Eventually, I land on Jewel Radio, which plays rock ballads. Anne looks up from her coffee when I Want to Know What Love Is by Foreigner comes on. This is a nice song, she says. I heard it on the radio when I was at school. When I'm Not in Love by 10CC plays, I get a bit nostalgic too for my own golden age of radio. My first job after college was reporting at a radio station in Calgary that prided itself on only having gals and gays on the air. Of course, in a city famous for oil men and cowboys, the gay bit was an industry secret. CHFM was a soft rock station and by default, its news was never too hard. I lived about a five-minute walk from the station in my own apartment with a Murphy bed. 
I felt like a bona fide career woman strolling home from work to no one except a bottle of white wine in the fridge and a bed that popped down from the wall. My daily assignment was to assemble a Vox Pop. I roamed the streets with a tape recorder asking people their opinion on topical issues like, shouldn't our mayor wear a tie? Or what's with all the cowboy hats? And is the Calgary Stampede good for business or just a chance for a bunch of moronic rodeo riders to come to town and shout sexist remarks to women in bars? Obviously, I never asked any of these questions, although I often pondered them myself. Mostly, I queried people about whether they thought the recent parking fine hikes were fair and who was going to win the Stanley Cup. Afterward, people would ask when they would be seen on TV. I had to explain gently that I was not holding a camera, only a microphone attached to a tape recorder. No, there was not a hidden camera, only their voice would be heard, probably between Fleetwood Mac and Toto. I also read the news on weekends with my first newscast at noon. On Saturday and Sunday mornings, I was the only one in the newsroom, ripping wire copy, checking the papers, and assembling my newscast. I didn't need to be in the newsroom much earlier than 10 a.m. However, I, I often found myself there by 6 a.m. or 6.12 a.m. to be precise. This was because of Hal. Hal was responsible for overnight and weekend programming, hours of pre-recorded shows on huge reel-to-reel -reel tape decks. Using sound gauges and electronic markings, Hal would determine the specific point where one reel would stop and another start. He was very professional. But like his namesake in the film 2001, A Space Odyssey, Hal was a machine with a mind of its own. At 5.59 a.m., the overnight music-only programming finished. At this moment, Hal was supposed to switch over to the documentaries that various people had electronically marked and loaded onto him. If by 6.02 a.m. there was no sound, or in radio lingo, dead air, I was in trouble. Hal was either ignoring or avoiding his electronic cues, or, like most sensible things at that hour, asleep, and I had to wake him up. So I would jump out of my bed, grab my glasses, put on some clothes, run out of my apartment, and along the street to the small mall of shops where CHFM was located. I'd get in with my swipe card and head to the newsroom. I'd open the studio door marked, Warning, Authorized Staff Only. And there would be Hal, silent and mocking. This sprint took about 12 minutes. If there was still dead air by 6.15 a.m., the phone would ring and the station's general manager would bark out, where's my goddamn radio? I had three minutes to find the reel-to-reel -reel tape that was not reeling and manually push the play button. Not really a difficult task, but one that Hal, for all his electronic wizardry, could not do and one that my work colleagues would not do. I was the lowly flunky, and I had to be at work in four hours anyway. But I did not hang around, although I could tell Hal wanted me to. I'd go back to my flat and get back into bed, then listen to the morning's radio running smoothly thanks to my efficient attention. Sometimes I'd be listening to myself. I had an early morning slot about local culture, mostly interviews with authors who happened to be passing through Calgary. I interviewed the son of Peter Sellers, who had written a biography of his father, P.S. I Love You, and John Casablancas, who invented the concept of supermodels, and a guy who wrote a book about how exercise makes you happy, who I slept with. 
I had won the most promising documentary producer award at college and considered myself a whiz editor. With a razor blade, I would painstakingly splice my audio tape to remove any annoying ums and ahs from my interviews or cut the extra chat that happened when I was setting up or winding down an interview session. So I was mortified when once I heard myself offering a cup of coffee before an interview and then the clattering of cups as I served it up. Another time, in the middle of an interview, I asked if I could shut the door. Then I heard me, yes, shutting it, then walking back and picking up the microphone. Very amateurish. But no one ever said anything about these gaffes, even the eagle-eared general manager. I guess once he was satisfied there was no dead air, he didn't listen to what was on the air. No one did, probably. Just me and Hal. When I returned to the airwaves a few years later, I wasn't wearing any clothes. That is, I was pretending I wasn't. I was working for a phone sex company. To get this job, I was first interviewed by the manager. This was actually a test call. The manager said, girls are scared of my big penis, are you? I said, no, I like a big penis. He asked, what would you do with my big penis? I said I would suck it, and so on. After 20 minutes of this big penis scenario, the manager said I was hired. Why you want to work for Fonsec? He asked in his heavily accented English. Oh, I need the money. My grandmother is sick, I said. Okay, he said, but you get new name, Lila. A fake name for a fake reason. I didn't have a sick grandmother. Both of mine had died before I was born. And didn't Big Penis know Canada had free health care? In reality, I was reporting for CBC Radio, a pilot for a feminist show called The Sound of Sirens. All of Lila's phone calls would be recorded in a CBC Toronto studio. The producer bought me a bottle of wine on the eve of my debut as Lila. I had quaffed most of it when the phone sex receptionist called. She had a number for my first customer. Rule one in phone sex world, the girl calls the guy, not the other way around. He's looking for somebody 14 and Japanese, she said. Just say you're 15 and don't worry about the accent. The producer, who was listening through the headphones in the booth, waved at me in a go ahead and do it, we need something on tape kind of way. Underage geisha girl it was. I made the call. It was pretty easy pretending to be a giggly teenager talking about taking off her clothes and touching her special spot. The call was over in 15 minutes. The next night, the producer said she wanted the show to reveal what kind of man called phone sex services. Can you keep the guys on the line a bit longer, she asked me. Ask them about their job, their life, maybe even their wife. My caller that night also wanted a teenager, this time one of legal age and from the deep south. After he'd finished, I kept him on the phone for an hour, asking him all sorts in a hammy southern accent. He was affably chatty. We talked about everything from hamburgers to house prizes to his divorce. Immediately after he hung up, the receptionist rang. Why had I been on the phone for so long? If a guy hasn't come in half an hour, you hang up, she said. He's only paid for 30 minutes. If he hasn't got off, he needs to pay another 60 bucks. $60? That's what the men paid per call? I made 20 bucks a call. This meant big penis was taking a very big 60%. 
This sexist discrepancy in pay was perfect material for the sound of sirens. I made a couple more calls for the show. One I had to be dominating without hitting. I just yelled at the guy to get down on his knees and beg for a blowjob. The other was a standard play with your pussy call. That guy asked for my phone number. In all, Lila made $80. Glenda never collected it. The CBC paid me three times as much. But it did not commission the sound of sirens beyond its pilot program. This confirmed for me that if I didn't have a career in radio, I might have one in the sex industry. I was never under the illusion that sex has to take hours and hours and involve lots of scented candles and soft music. All that mushy song tosh, I'm going to love you all night long. No, you're not. You're going to give me an orgasm in 10 minutes, go to sleep, and maybe in the morning I'll make you a cup of tea. And tantric sex sounds tedious. Waiting nine hours to come? I could be in Fiji by then. It was because of this brisk attitude to foreplay that I thought I could be a prostitute. Not your run-of-the-mill hooker, but an escort. While I was researching phone sex for the CBC, I'd noticed more enticing ads in the classifieds. Ads promising $1,000 a night to be made as a high-class companion or discreet escort. I bet I could do that. I could spend an evening attentively listening to a boring businessman in an expensive restaurant and then go to a hotel room and fuck for cash. As ever, I needed the money, and I was genuinely curious about how it worked. I rang one of the numbers. After taking down details like age, weight, and hair color, the mellifluous male voice on the phone said it was important we met. We arranged a rendezvous for the next afternoon in Natch of Tim Hortons in one of Toronto's less salubrious neighborhoods, mine actually. I wore a tight top, short skirt, and no underwear. I was on a dare with myself. I walked the half block to TH. It was crowded, but I knew who he was. Silk shirt, black hair slicked back, expensive watch, leather filofax. He could have been a Saudi software salesman. He asked me why I wanted to do this. I said I had fooled around a bit with phone sex and was open-mindedly looking for other challenges. I tried to switch the conversation around to ask him questions about the business. This didn't go over well. He asked if I was a policewoman trying to entrap him. I felt a bit insulted. Then he accused me of working for another escort agency and wanting to steal his business. I was faintly flattered. After about half an hour, we'd both finished our coffees. No donuts. It didn't seem appropriate. And he said, okay, let's go for a drive. As we walked out, it occurred to me that I had told no one what I was doing or who I was meeting. I got in the car. As we drove along the lakeshore, doors locked, air conditioning blasting against the sweltering summer, he put his mobile phone in the cradle and switched on the loudspeaker. He kept looking at me as a series of women left messages. Hi, I've finished with Ron and I'm going to take David now up front blow. Listen, Mr. Mike wanted anal, and I told him that is not what was discussed, so I'm waiting. 
Hey, babe, a bit slimy Stephen, but that's what he likes. Extra bucks for you. I knew he was gauging my reaction, seeing if I was uncomfortable. I didn't say anything and tried to keep my expression relaxed. What do you think of my girls? He asked. They seem pretty busy, I said. He laughed and suggested we stop for a drink. We went into a bar and I ordered a white wine. Ah, he said, you're not a cop because you're having a drink. He ordered a Coke and we sat down at the back of the empty bar. He began to talk more about his girls, how he knew them personally and how he spent time with them individually. He said a good relationship was really important and that each girl had to feel very comfortable with him alone. He said that before the girls could start working, he needed to have time with them intimately. You see, I have to be sure that they can do it. Do you think you can do it? He asked. Do you think you can have sex with a man you have just met? Do you understand what I am saying? This was the test. He wasn't going to put his girls on stage unless he knew they could sing. I understand, I said. Sure, I could have sex with you. Now, he said, now. Some girls prefer a neutral space like a hotel, he said. Some prefer their own environment. Whatever is best for you. He was solicitous, trying to put me at ease. We drove back to my flat. We had sex on my sofa. We did not go into my bedroom. He didn't ask. I didn't suggest it. I took my own clothes off. He took off his. We didn't kiss, but he did go down on me expertly. I came. He put on a condom. The actual act took less than five minutes. It wasn't rough. It wasn't romantic. It was rudimentary. Then we sat at my kitchen table drinking water. He began to open up about his system, how the girls always met the man first at the office to clarify exactly what was wanted and the price. This was paramount. The man could not ask for extras later. Location was then arranged, one of the office apartments, a hotel room, or the girl's own place. I expressed surprise at the lack of swish dinners in the itinerary. He said that was a myth. His girls usually did three or more men a night. There was no time for supper. Men don't want all that shit. A hundred bucks usually covered what they did want. The girl's safety was important, he said. There was an ABC system used when the girls phoned in with updates. A was to let the office know they were at the agreed locale. They'd phone and say something like, Hi, Andrea, just checking we're on for tomorrow. B, hi, Barb was if something was worrying, like the guy hadn't agreed to hand over the cash first, a must. C was used if there was a real problem. But there are never problems. My girls are professional, he said. You just made one mistake. You took all your clothes off before me. Always get the man's clothes off first, then you're more in control. Now, can you start tomorrow? I think you'd do well, a sexy blonde. It was his first compliment, sincere but sly. I agreed I could start tomorrow, and he said he'd call. He shook my hand and left. I thought about what I had done. I realized I felt no shame, no guilt. All I felt was a quiet kind of triumph. I had proved that I could do it, if I really had to. I could sell myself for sex. Maybe that's the ace up every woman's sleeve. But then I hadn't been paid. I hadn't even asked what his cut was. He had said his girls could make up to $500 a night. That's five men. The whole scene seemed pretty labor intensive. Escort really was just a euphemism. 
If this had been a movie, I would have jumped in a shower and scrubbed myself clean. But I felt no need. Neither did I phone a friend. I didn't feel emotionally damaged. I wasn't lonely. I went to bed and read a book. When he called the next day, I said I was really sorry, but I had changed my mind and wasn't ready for the job at this time. He seemed genuinely sad and said he hoped that he had not offended me in any way. He wished me luck. I had tried the world's oldest profession on for size and it fit. I just decided not to wear it.